Hi, I'm Leon Deggs, and this is Man Blues. On this week's show, I'm going to be discussing how I coped with the death of my father. So in order to understand the relationship I had with my father, you need to understand how old I was when my father died. I was nine, which is a very young age, and it's not an age you want anybody to have to cope with anything like that, because it's really an unpleasant thing. But I do distinctly remember that on the day that it was announced that my brother and I were just staring at each other, kind of almost willing each other to be the ones to break down, weaken and cry. Um, and neither one of us did. But I do remember the very heavy feeling of something stuck in my throat, the lump in my throat about me, I don't know, fighting the emotions that I wanted to display. Okay, so that's what happened after we were told. So, the events leading up to it. When I was born, my father was 52 years old. That's really old. Um, There's no other way to say it, there's no way to sugarcoat it. That's an old father. And um, my mother also wasn't particularly young either. She was 38. So what it means is, is that I was growing up in in an environment where, not knowing any better, my parents were quite old. The family situation was complicated somewhat by the fact that I am a twin to my sister and we've got a brother and sister who are also twins and they are 14 months older. Now just let that sink in for a minute. I was born together with my sister on the same day. We were 20 minutes apart. She came out first, I came out second. And on the day we were born, my parents already had two children who were born 14 months earlier. You can imagine life was pretty tough for them. And then as the years wore on, um, you know, and the relationship broke down with my mother over the years, as it would do, because, you know, she gave me all the... We'll talk about my mother in a different episode. But uh, as the relationship broke down, um, you do find yourself reflecting a little bit on your life and how you came to be and um, how you ended up in the world. And you look at things like, well, I don't understand why I'm even here. I mean, I've said in in one of the episodes, I don't even know if I have depression um, because I'm not entirely sure what being depressed feels like. And everyone tells you, you'll know if you've got it. Um, I've discussed that at length. But here's the mad thing. On those occasions where I um, was questioning my place in the world, as you do as a teenager, you find yourself reflecting on the fact that you are now the youngest of five children, the youngest of the four to the same father, And if I'm the problem twin, and my sister, she was also the problem child, you start to ask yourself why it is that you ended up even being born. I mean, what must the moment have been like in my mother and father's lives when they found out that my mother was pregnant again? So six months after the twins were born, she found out she was pregnant. So of course, it must have come as a bit of a shock to find out that not only was she pregnant six months after the previous set of twins had arrived, but that she was also due to have twins again. And you wonder whether there were questions between the two of them at that time. But it can't have been easy on the relationship to find out that while they're busy, you know, changing nappies for two babies that have arrived at their age, my dad 52, my mum 38, relatively old people, 
because uh, at that sort of age, I mean, definitely my dad's age, you, you know, you want to not only be looking to settle down, but you want to actually be settled and starting to look forward to your retirement. And in my mother's case, things must have been at the point where, as a 38-year-old, she'd be wanting to, you know, not already be settled, but then starting to enjoy life and starting to revel in the fact that, you know, she's got all these situations in hand. And then suddenly two babies come along. And then 14 months later, two more come along. And I can't imagine what they went through. I can't imagine how difficult it was to cope with. I mean, my, my older brother, he said on a couple of occasions, uh, it was just the routine that gets you through because, you know, you're changing four nappies, you're feeding, you know, four children at once, you're bathing four children, you're putting four children to bed because 14 months apart means nothing really. Um, there's, there's no very little difference in terms of you know, developmental stages and so on. So anyway, in those nine years that I remember of my father being alive, uh, we've got some fantastic photographs of things going back all those years. I remember him being quite a fun guy. I remember him being uh, quite musical. Uh, there was one Christmas where we got, um, it was a rubbish plastic piano keyboard thing. And uh, there's a photograph of me sat on the edge of a chair next to my dad, desperate to have a go on this thing while my dad's busy plinking and plonking away on this piano. And I just want to have a go on it. And from the earliest days, I remember sort of wanting a drum kit, wanting to play music, wanting to do anything with music. Um, and not necessarily having the outlet because when there's four kids uh, you know you, you do understand quite quickly there's not a lot of money floating around uh, and if all four children want something that's expensive then none of you are going to get it anyway um, I did tell a memory of my father um, in one of the previous episodes of where I'd injured my face and was unable to eat anything other than liquid food because of the damage to a cheek I had a hole in my face and he took me to the local chip shop and he got me some chips and had them absolutely swimming in gravy so the food was nice and soft and that's a really touching and loving memory that I have of him other than that I don't really have that many uh, he did used to take us uh, the, the, at the time there was a, a local stock car track you know where, you could, where stock cars used to go racing and he would take us there um, and we would watch the races and we enjoyed it and we would, you know, he would tell us to cheer on a particular number uh, as the cars were racing around. It was noisy, it was loud and we were kids and it was brilliant and we loved it and it was fantastic. Um, he also, we, we went away to holiday campsites. Again, when you've got four little kids, there's not a lot of places you can go. You don't want to be looking into um, passports and flying abroad. So a lot of our early family holidays were all done in the UK. Essentially, the, the memories I've got of my father are very, very sort of scant, really. There's not a lot of them. So on the day, lead, well, leading up to him dying, essentially, there'd been a few little kind of, I don't know what you would call it, like little episodes of sort of hints of problems that when you look at it with hindsight, you kind of go, oh, right, okay, so that was leading up to this. One of the instances was, um, now this may just very well have been an allergy, and that's okay and that's fine, but... At this particular point in my father's life, he's getting on a bit, he wants to look at retirement and he bought a house where my mother ended up living for the rest of her life and um, he wanted to make sure that there was somewhere comfortable to go, it was a nice garden and what have you and he was out there one day and he was um, planting roses and flowers and stuff and he'd accidentally pricked his finger on one of the flowers and it caused his face and skin to swell up, he, he had a, a, a terrible allergic reaction to it. So much so that when he was driving home between where the new house was and where the old house was, um, his eyes swelled shut and was unable to see. He had to pull over, stagger his way to find a phone booth. He rang home, told them where he was approximately before his eyes closed. 
got picked up and brought home and was taken to hospital and they found out whatever it was. But my older sister, she distinctly remembers him having sort of uh, hallucinations. Now, when, because the timeline is all skewed because of the fact I was between five years old and nine years old, I don't know when everything was, but she distinctly, she tells a story where she distinctly remembers him waking up in the middle of the night and being upset about the fact that the curtains were open in the bedroom. And now, so, to give that some kind of clarification, we were in a very small house above a newsagent's and there was only two bedrooms. And please don't ask me why, but you never know. This might be contributing to why I've got the issues that I've got uh, with the mental health and so on. The grandmother from my mother's side lived with us. So if you can imagine, there's my father, my mother, and four children all sleeping in one bedroom, while my grandmother has the second bedroom, which is the smaller bedroom. Now, I can't imagine what strain that puts on their marriage and their relationship to have his mother-in-law sleeping in the same house. But they needed it because they were running a little business. They had a news agent, and of course it needed somebody to get up at six o'clock in the morning to sort out all the papers, get everything ready, get all the paperboys deliveries, doing all the rest of it and sorted. And then of course they've got four little kids to deal with. So it kind of probably was a, if you will, something about convenience that they've got an extra pair of hands to help out. But I can imagine that took a bit of a strain on the relationship. So anyway, there we are. So there's my sister and all the other children were all sleeping in the same bedroom. And my sister distinctly remembers my father waking up in the middle of the night, spotting the curtains open in the window and sort of getting very anxious and very upset and very disturbed because he wants the curtains to be closed because he can see Japanese planes flying towards him. And my father was old enough that he was actually in the Second World War. Obviously, as a generational type of thing, he never spoke about what he did in the war. But my father was convinced he could see these um, Japanese planes flying towards him and he needed the curtains closed. So my sister leapt up and closed the curtains. Now, she can't have been anything more than 10 years old, which has got to be quite scary, you know, to see your father lying in bed, genuinely afraid and shrieking almost, kind of like, close the curtains, close the curtains, close the curtains. Uh, there'd been a few incidents, uh, a few sort of things that had happened that, of that ilk, you know, where he was having these hallucinations, he had this prick with the rose and what have you, and it, it, his skin swelled up, and there was a couple of other bits and pieces that I can't fully remember, so I'm not even going to try to mention them. But then there was the night that he um, was particularly unwell, and he was taken to hospital, and I believe he was in hospital for a couple of nights, while they were trying to ascertain what was wrong with him, do blood tests and so on and so on. Our memory of it was that we went to the local infirmary. All we remember was being frightened by the lift, the elevator because when it was going down it shuddered and shook until it stopped and that frightened us and we we all distinctly remember going in and out of this infirmary for a couple of nights back to back maybe two three nights so he was in there for a couple of days while they were trying to figure out what was wrong with him so they sent him home on saturday basically saying to the children he's fine he's coming home but we found out later that he told my mother something completely different and the reason they sent me home was because they knew that he hadn't got along. Uh, because at this point the cancer was so virulent and had spread so far he was probably better at home on pain meds dying with his family. Which he did seven days later on the Friday night. So the night he died um, I'd gone to bed early for whatever reason but my father's laying in bed and he's asleep and I fall asleep. And then when I wake up in the morning, everyone's gathered round and they're all wondering what's going on because, you know, mum's crying and grandma's trying to put on a brave, brave face on it. And then mother gathers the children round. We were near the top of the stairs in this small pokey house. And that's where she told us that uh, our father was dead. 
and like I said, I just remember my brother and me, my two sisters, they broke down in tears, um, and I think there may have been some hugging involved, but I just remember my brother and I just standing there, sort of looking at each other, not looking at each other, kind of not wanting to cry, wanting to be strong boys and all the other things, you know, but that's all we knew at the time. Didn't shed a single tear for my father, and that's, it's kind of hard to cope with, really. Um, it's kind of hard to understand and process a little bit. And of course, that's my memory of it. So I went upstairs to bed. My dad was already in bed. I fell asleep. I woke up in the morning. There was a bit of a bit of a panic, and suddenly there's this news around. Mum's not. Mum's crying. Whatever. However, the actual truth of the story is is that my father was dead before my mother actually got into bed. She came upstairs later that evening. Whatever. Put the rest of the children to bed, and that's when she found him, sort of lifeless in the bed. So she called the ambulance, collected the children, took us two, three doors further down the road to a, to a friend of the family's, and we spent the evening in that woman's house. And it was some time, it was like one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning by the time we were allowed back in the house after the doctor had pronounced him dead. Coroners had been called out, the body had been taken away, and mother had obviously said something along the lines of, let's, you know, to the doctors, let's keep this light for the children, we'll deal with it in the morning because we so were at this family's house, lots going on. Then we're brought back into the house, we're put into our beds. And we wake up and she tells us the news. My memory of that is non-existent. I remember going into the bedroom, falling asleep and waking up in the morning. So I was carried from my bed bodily down the stairs, out of the front door, two, three doors down the road, into somebody else's house. Lots of noise going on, whatever. Then doctors in and out, you name it, at our house, we didn't see that. And then mum came and got us and brought us home and put us into bed. And then the following morning told us the story. None of that, I've got no memory of it whatsoever. But it was an interesting one because suddenly my, my father's gone, you, you know, your life is completely changed and topsy-turvy and thrown, up, thrown upside down. So after that, very quickly in my mind, obviously, because it's a child's mind, you, you, you don't fill in the gaps. And, you know, it's, it's only when you're older you realise that time passes much more slowly. Um, I remember the day of the funeral um, and we had a cellar or a basement in our house at that time. And we went down into the basement and we were introduced to two teenagers. Bearing in mind we're sort of nine years old, ten years old. And there were two teenagers there that were like 15 and 16, something like that. And they turned out to be children from my father, from a completely different marriage that none of us knew a first thing about. There was no mother, there was no wife. It was just the two children. And then we go to the funeral. First ever experience of a funeral. Mother's in tears, grandmother's in tears, you know, because it's a sombre affair. My sisters are crying, my brother and I are just sitting there, you know, the rocks. Not a single emotion won't passes our face, we don't shed a single tear for him. But the strangest thing was, because it was a cremation, they put the, the coffin down, the casket on the um, sort of the conveyor belt that takes the coffin over into the back. <laughs> apparently it's not the done thing, I've spoken to people about it since, but apparently it's not the done thing. Normally what they do is they bring the curtains round first, so you can say a nice goodbye to the casket, so the, you know, the curtains close, you know, the whole symbolism of the curtains closing and what have you, and then the coffin is ferried away. But uh, what they did in our case was the coffin started moving and then the curtains closed, and that's the bit when the children, all four of us, for whatever reason, we just started to giggle because we thought it was funny that the coffin was moving and the curtains were closing. Whereas for us, it, it didn't have any symbolism. We were just like, oh, look, the coffin's moving. Because for us, it looked like a little bit of a roller coaster, a little bit of a fun ride, and that was how we coped with it. So, yeah, it's been, it, it was an interesting life without a father, you know, a father figure around, because there's quite a few times where you think, you know, there's been a few questions I would like to have asked him. So, interestingly, sort of the big one I actually said to a friend of mine, 
he was uh, I went round to his house one time and he had this uh, really quite bad shaving cut on his upper lip and I said to him how on earth have you cut your face that badly he said oh yeah I was, I was trying to shave and I didn't you know didn't have soap on that particular side of my face and I sliced the razor across sideways instead of downwards and I looked at him and just said that's what annoys me your dad is sat downstairs and you could have asked him to help you shave and you didn't my dad his ashes are in a box in my mother's bedroom I can't ask him I can't ask my mum how to shave because she's no idea you've got someone you can ask and you haven't I've got no one I can ask and I want to and that was when I first realised how tough it is to grow up without a father because you could talk about having a paternal um, sort of hand guiding you and having a maternal sort of argument with them you can talk about all that sort of stuff and we've, we've seen that with our son as well that there's certain things that the father will allow and there's certain things the mother will allow I think the interesting thing with it is is that there weren't many times where I missed having a father because you can't miss what you haven't got and when you're young in my case definitely I mean again this really only applies to me when, when you're young enough that you look at something like having a father figure around uh, and then suddenly that father figure isn't there you get used to things very very quickly children are really really resilient and they will get over things quicker than you give them credit for so I don't particularly feel bad about the loss of my father because I know for a fact I mean just by virtue of the fact that when he was born he'd be over a hundred now and um, so he would have died at some point anyway and um, he lived a pretty sort of interesting life by the sounds of it I would have loved to have known more about what he did in the Second World War I would have loved to have been able to ask him about that he never talked about it my mother possibly knew a few bits and pieces I don't know because I know that before they had the children there were photographs of them in places like Egypt and Tunisia where my father was potentially based during the war. Uh, he may have gone back to visit those places afterwards to kind of go, well, I was fighting here. It would be nice to go and see them when we're not fighting. So I know that they went on a few sort of holidays to those kind of places. Again, really interesting, but it would be, it would be nice to have a chat with him just to know what he did during the war and where he was and what happened and so on. You know, there, there probably would be some life experiences he could have imparted, but then again, equally, we're pretty much two generations apart. Because even though he's my father, he's actually old enough to be my grandfather. So, you know, there's a massive generational gap. He may never have understood a damn thing we were going through. Parents don't understand what their children are going through anyway because it's a different generational thing. I mean, I never had mobile phones growing up. My son's grown up only with mobile phones. He wouldn't know a life without one, whereas I remember what it was like. So, yeah, so in terms of uh, that kind of um, coping with grief and so on, uh, when you're nine, it's, um, it's, I don't know, it's a little bit different for me. I do regret not being strong enough to show emotions you know it's, it's my father he's died and I'm looking at my older brother older by only 14 months and he's probably looking to me and thinking well is he going to cry and neither of us cried and, and I think that may have affected my brother a lot heavier than it affected me I think my brother struggles to show emotion especially to his children he's quite cold and quite aloof to his children and I made an effort to not be with mine um, and I will admit the very first time I said to my son that I loved him it was difficult to say but as soon as you said it once it's easier to say again so my name is Leon Deggs and I've been without a father for longer than I've been with a father at the point when I was 19 years old that was it and um, I've been on the earth longer without than with and I don't think I'm any worse off for it because of how it happened and when it happened and how soon it happened and how quick it was there wasn't any long time to get used to any things it was just kind of one day he was there the next day he wasn't and in a child's mind you just you cope you get on with things so thank you for listening
If you're affected by anything discussed on this podcast, please reach out to someone for help and support. Man Blues is not qualified to help, but we can listen. You can get in touch with us here at Man Blues. The email address is manblues at gmx.com. And we're also available on Twitter, which is at manbluesuk. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks again.